Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to the first chapter of Exodus. First chapter of Exodus. We finished Proverbs last week. We turn now to this book that tells about Israel in bondage and their deliverance from slavery. They're being brought to build the tabernacle and into the presence of God for worship. The book is about the knowledge of God. We'll see that in just a moment. Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Let's pray. Father, you kept your promise. They were fruitful and multiplied. Exodus is about how you keep your promises. That's what you reveal yourself as. Lord, help us to claim those promises. Especially your promise that when we listen to your word and hear it with faith, it saves us. Help us to listen and hear with faith tonight. Help me to speak with faith. Give us the grace to learn to know you as the God of the Exodus. We pray that you would free us from distraction, fix our hearts on your promises. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. Well, this book is exciting. Of course, filmmakers have plundered it. Uh, More so, say, than the next book, Leviticus. Can't say that Hollywood has made too many Levitical extravaganzas. This book is referenced over and over in the New Testament. Uh, For instance, in the beginning of chapter 2, the nativity of Moses We see Stephen make a big deal out of that in Acts 7. We see the Hebrew writer make a big deal out of that in Hebrews 11. This book, of course, is foundational for the identity of Israel. The modern Jews, as well as the ancient Jews, we are the people who were brought out of the land of Egypt. And so, in turn, this book has inspired a lot of attacks. Archaeologists and historians and others who say, didn't happen. I dug all over the Sinai Peninsula and Israel never walked across it. We can talk about why that's a dumb thing to say, but there are plenty of people who say it because if the book of Exodus is not true, then God doesn't keep his promises and to believe in him is stupid. So the book is... A well-known one, certainly one of the best-known ones in the entire Old Testament. And it's worth a look because, not only because it's well-known, but specifically for what it teaches. What it teaches is the knowledge of God. That's the theme, that's the issue that comes up pretty quickly. Right in chapter 3, as soon as we're done with the introductory material, Moses comes to the burning bush and says, what's your name? Who are you? Who is God? And then two chapters later, Pharaoh asks the same question. Who is the Lord? 
And the rest of the book answers the question of who God is. The book shows us the name of God, the identity of God, in some very, very graphic ways. What we'll see is that the book of Exodus moves from slavery in Egypt to the completion of the tabernacle in two action-packed years. The book covers two years, and it takes us from slavery to worship through the knowledge of God. From slavery to worship through the knowledge of God. That's the progression of Exodus. The book starts with, now these are the names, and that is the Hebrew title of the book. The first two words, now these are, first word, and the names. So Shemot is the Hebrew word for names. If you have a Hebrew Bible, you will see the heading on the top of the page is not this Greek name, Exodus, but rather the Hebrew term Shemot. The book, of course, doesn't contain a lot of names any more than the book of Numbers contains a lot of numbers. But the book starts in the middle of a story. You need to know that Israel and Jacob are the same person, if you're going to understand verse 1. You need to have the backstory on how Jacob had two wives, two concubines, twelve sons, in order to understand this list, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and so on. The book tells us that this is the continuation of the story that was begun in Genesis. So if you haven't read Genesis recently, you should go back and read it if you want to have a prayer of understanding what happens in Exodus. But the thing that sticks out, really, is that God brought his people into Egypt, and there he enslaved them. They were free in the land of Canaan. They were nomads. They had large flocks and herds. They lived where they wanted, did what they wanted. God said to Jacob, go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to go down there. And Jacob comes down with his family of 70 descendants, And within a few generations, there arises a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. What are you thinking, God? The book doesn't say. Why was Israel oppressed in Egypt? The Bible never shows the slightest hint of interest in that subject. It's just a given. They were. Pharaoh, in his crazy crusade against Jehovah, decides to oppress the people of Israel. We have a profound interest in diagnosing why we're hurting. God, am I being punished for something? Did I do something wrong? Am I just, is it just not my week, my month, my year? Why is this bad thing happening to me? Well, clearly, if we think of Moses as the author of Exodus, and it does talk at times about him writing, though it doesn't specifically say that he wrote the book, Moses himself would have plenty of reason to ask, why were my people enslaved like this? Why did I have to deliver them? He doesn't get into that question. 
Because the answer to the question wouldn't really help. You may have noticed this, that there's times when you see somebody who's hurting, maybe one of your children, and you explain to them in detail why they're hurting. And at the end, they're very grateful and they say, I feel so much better. Not, no, they never say that. Oh, now that I know why, it doesn't hurt anymore. No, it still hurts, even when you know why. Now, it could be true that the greatest ache is that void of meaninglessness. I don't know why I'm hurting, and that hurts me more than that I'm hurting. But the ultimate answer simply is found in the purposes of God. God wanted to reveal himself. He wanted Israel to know him, and the best way for them to learn to know him in his judgment, was to send them into Egypt and afflict them 430 years. Not a message of comfort, peace, and warm fuzzies. But that's where Exodus begins. God shows himself to his people by signs, by wonders, and by an awful lot of pain and genocide. So the question that arises right away is, do you know the God of the Exodus? Would your God send his people into Egypt to be afflicted 430 years? Would your God let an evil Pharaoh stand up and trample on you, kill your children? If the answer is no, then he's not the God of the Exodus. To put it another way, the God who can't judge is the God who can't save. The two are flip sides. If God couldn't put them into Egypt, then he would not have been able to get them out. To posit a God who could redeem them from Egypt but have no control over whether they went there doesn't make sense. The God who saves is also the God who judges. Not an easy message to hear. But the message of Exodus. If everything were going well for us, how would we know we needed him? But God does show himself as a God who cares about his people's plight. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God knew. And the point is not to say God is callous and unfeeling. God doesn't care. The point is to say God cares about something else more than he cares about your comfort and mine. He cares about his glory. He cares about his people. He cares about showing himself for who he is. Israel went into Egypt so that God could be revealed. And that issue comes to the fore if you turn ahead to chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Right, so the question, and then he states it directly, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Pharaoh directly, in so many words, challenges the knowledge of God. I don't know him. Never heard of him. And so I won't do what you asked me to do in the name of Jehovah because I don't know this Jehovah of whom you speak. Well, Pharaoh is about to find out who the Lord is. Right? That's one major event through Exodus. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? So that Pharaoh can keep going and keep finding out who God is. Pharaoh is going to have it out. He's going to push it all the way. He's going to force the issue. And at the end of forcing the issue, he drowns in the Red Sea. God wins. Because if you don't know who the Lord is, and therefore you deny his commandments, won't listen to his word, reject it, say, I'm going to do what I want to do, well, the consequences are very severe. Don't you see that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh's advisors ask him. No, Pharaoh didn't see that. Because Pharaoh was on a crusade against the Almighty. Pharaoh started a war with the Yahweh he didn't know. And Yahweh showed him. What did God show himself to be? Well, the first thing he showed is that he is the God of the Exodus, the God who brings his people out of bondage. Chapter 6. Therefore, 6 verse 6. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. Right? The knowledge of God. He's revealing himself. This is who Yahweh is. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is revealing himself to the people so that they will know who he is. Showing them himself. When you're redeemed, when you're rescued from your 430 years of slavery, then you get an idea of who your God is. He's the God who lets you be enslaved. True enough. But he goes far, far beyond that in that he is the God who delivers from slavery. So in 1978, uh, a Latin American fellow named Gustavo Gutierrez wrote a book called A Theology of Liberation. Probably one that I need to read, but essentially the core idea of this liberation theology that Gutierrez touted is that Exodus, and really theology as a whole, teaches freedom in political terms. And if we translate Christian theology into Marxist praxis, that we can bring about the kingdom here and now. We can free people, right? You can be rescued from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and the kingdom of God can come through human political action. Now, is that the idea that the text of Exodus 
presents to us? And the short answer is no, right? This is supernatural stuff. I am Yahweh. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. God doesn't reveal himself as the one who grants, in the first instance, political freedom, sexual freedom, financial freedom, moral freedom. God is the God who gives spiritual freedom, the freedom to worship. Let my, free, let my people go that they may serve me. God doesn't free us so that we can throw off oppressive governments, so that we can have political freedom or ever-increasing moral freedom. The point of the book is not liberation. The point of the book is the knowledge of God. You're free to live in the most heavenly way possible here on earth, knowing that God didn't free you so that you could recreate Egypt and take slaves of your own. God didn't bring them out so that they could go to the promised land and build Egypt all over again. He didn't free them, lead them out in the desert and provide them with superior weaponry so that they could maintain political freedom against the other nations of the ancient Near East. Right? Far from it. Most of the rest of the Old Testament has them dominated by one neighbor or another. Because the point is not political freedom. The point is spiritual freedom. And how is that achieved? How does God deliver? Well, chapter 13 tells us, or chapter 12 tells us, it's by the blood of the Lamb. God demands the firstborn, the son of promise. That was established back in Genesis 22. Take now your son, whom you love, your only son, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there on one of the mountains which I will show you. Thus speaks Genesis 22. And what's the lesson? Abraham, in order for you to live, the son of promise has to die. God in his mercy swaps in a ram at the last second in that story. But as theologians and rabbis have long recognized, the point of the story is that God has exclusive claim on the life of the firstborn son of promise. God demands that life. And for a time, he's willing to accept a substitute. Passover formalizes this. Every year you give a lamb as a substitute for the life of the firstborn. And those who won't give it in Egypt get to watch their firstborn die. That, of course, happened to Pharaoh from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the maid behind the mill. Those who would not accept the blood of the lamb to cover them saw their firstborn killed. The God of the Exodus is not a cute and cuddly God. We talk about playing hardball. Well, God certainly takes that to an extreme. He is not 
afraid to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. This is not political liberation. The gospel is better news than that. This is Christian theology's message of freedom from death through the blood of the Lamb who died in your place. So we'll get there when we get to chapter 12 and see that God reveals himself at the Passover as the one who saves by the blood of the Lamb. The third thing, God reveals himself once they get to Mount Sinai in chapter 20. He reveals himself as the God who gives rules, commands for his people's lives. And we'll spend a good bit of time on the Ten Commandments. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image, and so on. God reveals himself not just as redeemer, not just as the one who saves by the blood of the lamb, but also as the one who rules, who says, thou shalt, and thou shalt not. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but you shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. God reveals himself as the one who rules his people, who gives laws, not ten suggestions, ten commandments. These are a revelation not only of what's best for humanity, but also of what is important to deity. God shows himself in the Ten Commandments. And of course, several of the commandments refer directly to God. You shall have no other gods before me. And I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The seventh day is the Sabbath, of the Lord your God. That your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The commandments are saturated with references to Jehovah God because in them he tells us who he is and what he wants. He tells that in the context of relationship. We've talked about that. He tells it after he's already delivered his people from Egypt. We've talked about that. But at the end of the day, they are binding commands, and woe be to the one who relaxes the least of these, takes one iota or one dot out of the law, Jesus says. So we will hear the thunders of the law from Mount Sinai in this book. The knowledge of God comes to very full expression in the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments is not where the book ends. Nor does the book end with getting out of the land of Egypt. When they cross the border, that's not the end. That would be around chapter 13, chapter 14. But the book goes on way beyond that. We have 40 chapters of Exodus. Twelve of them talk about getting out of Egypt. Maybe 14 of them, if you want to number it that way. But 15, 16 of them talk about building the tabernacle. Why? Why do we have so much material describing in every last detail what this tabernacle in its furniture are supposed to look like? Stuff like this. Chapter 
27, verse 9. You also shall make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court, woven of fine linen thread, 100 cubits long for one side, and its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side there shall be hangings 100 cubits long, with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. You're reading along and you're saying, wow, Red Sea crossing. Wow, Ten Commandments, this is good stuff. Uh, now I'm getting into curtains, interior decorating, like literally instructions for how wide the door is. And we're going to talk about that, how in the maturity of the people of God today, God doesn't give us these kinds of instructions for the church anymore. He doesn't say, build it with the door 15 cubits wide. Put 20 curtains along the walls. He expects us to be able to come into his presence without that kind of detailed instruction. But for the church under age, as Reformed theologians call Israel at this time, God gives the lion's share of the book of Exodus to revealing how he's going to come and live with his people. That's what it's about. We hear so much about the curtains, the size of the tabernacle, the decoration of the tabernacle, the furniture of the tabernacle, the service of the tabernacle, the names of the personnel who are supposed to run it. All of that is in here. Because God is coming to dwell with his people and we want to know every detail and make sure it's perfect. The book of Exodus is about the knowledge of God. It's not about plagues. It's not about miracles. It's not about how do you feed two million people in the Sinai desert. Not about that. It's about learning to know what God is like. And how do you learn to know Him? Well, you can learn to know Him to some extent through signs and wonders, through miracles, through the Red Sea crossing, but the way... He really reveals himself is when you come into his presence in his home, his tabernacle, and see him there. Right? You've all experienced that you really know somebody much better once you've been in their house. Oh, that's who they are. Oh, that's how they choose to live. I read one time in Table Talk magazine, the author said that she was in a home where there was a rabbit living in a hutch on top of the microwave. Just reveals something about the nature of that family. So why does Exodus contain all this material on God's house? Because that's how he reveals himself to us. The book ends with the payoff of describing God's house. It describes God moving in. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is the climax of the book, chapter 40, verse 34. God has revealed himself to his people. They have gotten to know him more and more over the course of these two years as the God of the Exodus as the God of the Passover, as the God of the Ten Commandments, the climax of his revelation is that 
He is the God of the sanctuary, the God who lives with his people in their camp, who travels around the desert with them, and who will take up permanent residence with them in the promised land, in the temple. And that continues to be the great theme of the Bible. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. That's why God brought his people out of Egypt. That's why most of Exodus is about building the tabernacle. Or a plurality of the chapters. And that's why the New Testament ends by describing God coming and living with his people in the city called the New Jerusalem. Just as God lived at a specific address in Jerusalem of old, so he will dwell with his people in the New Jerusalem. If you're a convicted liberation theologian, you'll find Exodus a disappointment. If you're convinced that this book contains the recipe for delivering you and your community from government repression of any stripe, Right? Too many regulations, too many murderous cops, too much voter fraud, too much voter suppression. You're going to be disappointed. You won't find that program in these pages. Not here. It's not a set of rules for radicals. It's a set of rules for the people of God. It tells us how to meet with God in his house and what that looks like. That's why he brought them out, so that they could serve him. And that's why he delivered us from sin, so that we could serve him. Exodus is about moving from slavery to worship through the knowledge of God. Exodus shows us who our God is. Political freedom is not necessary for Christians. Christians have lived in many unfree places and continue to do so at this very moment. The book of Exodus is about something better. It's about the knowledge of God. Freedom from sin so that you are freed to come into his presence and worship him and get to know him. So buckle up for an exciting ride through the pages of Exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show yourself to us in this book. Help us to love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. Help us to know that whatever repression, whatever sorrow, whatever difficulty and trial you've sent by your good providence into our life, the point is not to hurt us, the point is to show us who you are. Father, give us the grace to learn the knowledge of God. Teach us to look like Jesus because we've come into his presence in his house and seen him and met with him. Thank you for your goodness and mercy that will follow us all the days of our lives. Let us dwell in your house forever.
I pray these things, Father, in the name of our risen Lord, the one who had his own exodus in Jerusalem, who came out of the tomb, who was risen and seated at your right hand. Amen.